680 days ago, give or take a couple of days, the world was a much different place. But there has been at least one constant for our church, and that has been that we have been in the book of Genesis for around the last 680 days. And if you remember, at the very beginning of our sermon series, we looked at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. That says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is one of the most important verses, and it, and it just kicks off the Bible in a beautiful way. And it tells us so much of what we need to know about God, about our, our own existence, about time itself. And so in that first verse, we looked at God and that God is the force that ultimately has caused everything that has come to be. We usually think of things in terms of time, space and matter. So in that first verse, we have Genesis chapter 1, 1, in the beginning. Well, what is that? That's time. So there, there was a beginning to all things, and it began at a certain point in time. So in the beginning, God. Well, what is God? And he's the force. He's the force that's going to cause all of these things to come. So God is the force. The beginning is the time. Well, what did this force do? What did God do in the beginning? There was, a, there was a great action, wasn't there? That God created. There, there was this great action of, of bringing something into being that didn't already exist before. Well, what did he create? He created space. He created heavens. The heavens. So, so he created space in order to put something into that space. He created the earth. That's, that's matter. So even within the first verse of the Bible, you have time, space, and matter, and this great force being God who brought all three of these things into existence at the same exact time. And it had to be that way because if he brings in uh, space, for instance, but he doesn't bring in time, when is God going to put that there? If he, if he creates uh, matter but he doesn't create space, then where is he going to put that matter? So all of these things hinge on each other. Time, space, and matter coming into being, coming into time, created by God at the exact same time. And that was all found within Genesis chapter 1 in verse 1. And so much then of what we have pursued through these last 50 or so chapters has been with the understanding that God created absolutely everything. That nothing exists that God didn't create. And so as we began to move through this book of the Bible, we saw that God made a perfect world. And if you remember, God entered into this wonderful relationship with Adam in Genesis chapter 2 that we call the covenant of works. He calls this relationship with Adam and he says, Adam, I have an expectation for you that you do not eat of the tree. And that if you do not eat of the tree, you're going to be blessed. But what is the implication? That if you eat of the, you eat of the tree, you're going to be cursed. So there's, there's this dual-sided nature to Adam's obedience. If he obeys, there's going to be blessing. But if he disobeys, there's going to be curse. So, of course, Adam breaks the covenant. He falls. He brings the entire humanity, the entire creation into 
cursing with him. Remember, as time goes on, the man continues to get more and more evil. Cain, of course, killing Abel. But even beyond that, things get so bad up till Genesis chapter 6 that God decides that he's going to destroy everything with a flood. The whole flood episode happens and then God begins to rebuild his world. God enters into another covenant with his entire creation that we call the Noahic covenant in Genesis chapter 9. And in that covenant, God says that he's never going to destroy the earth again. And what God is doing there is he's creating an atmosphere of flourishing. He says, I'll no longer step in and destroy absolutely everything with the intention that the earth would then rebound and respond to, to, to God's covenant. But then time continues to go on and things get really bad again. Of course, God has decided that he won't destroy the earth, but he never promised that he wouldn't confuse the languages. And so at the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, what do you see? God confuses all of the language of these wicked people and he spreads them all across the planet. And things continue to go and God decides that he's going to work specifically with a man named Abraham. And so he sets up another covenant. And you notice his pattern throughout the book of Genesis where God establishes these covenants. And so he establishes what we call the Abrahamic covenant and he makes promises to Abraham. He's going to make him a great name. He's going to give him a great nation. All of the families of the earth are going to be blessed in this man, Abraham. And so as we've been following from Abraham on, we've seen Abraham in his life, Isaac in his life, Jacob in his life, Jacob's sons. And what have we seen with all of these men? We've seen very clearly that they are sinners. So so it might not be that the macro Uh, perspective of need to destroy the earth with a flood or we need to confuse the languages but within their families as individuals all of these men and women are found wanting all of these men and women are not as they were at least originally created to be perfect in the garden of eden without sin without any kind of disease or death but now we are seeing that they are sinful that they are diseased that they are going to all die But you know, the interesting thing that we've seen throughout this book is that despite all of this being true and that we have sin, death, disease, all of the things that we still experience today, all things in some way work together for good. God is able to take all of the trash and bring about goodness from it. Genesis shows us that despite the sin that Adam brought into the world, God means it for good. And so even all of those accounts that I've I've rattled off for you, the fall. Well, how did God mean the fall for good? That was like the most terrible moment, one of the most terrible moments in human history. Well, he means it for good in that he's going to bring about a redeemer and show his love for people in Genesis chapter 3.15. That somebody's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. Well, how could something good come out of the flood? He destroyed absolutely everything. Well, you have Noah. You have his ark of redemption. and How he carries him through these dangerous waters of judgment. And he saves Noah. Well, how could God mean something for good in something like Babel? Well, he spreads man all across the globe. And then what does he do? He chooses Abraham and says, all of those families that have been spread across the globe, they're now going to be blessed in you, Abraham. 
And so God works this way over and over again with the patriarchs, that he takes the, the sin, he, he uses their situations of, of sludge and trash that they bring to the table, and God brings it out for good. It's a beautiful pattern that you see all throughout the book of Genesis, all throughout the Bible, and in your own life as well, if you were to take the time to look at your own life. Maybe most notably in this morning's passage, even if only because this famous verse is found there, where Joseph says, guys, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. You meant it for evil, brothers, but God meant it for good. And so within this last sermon on these last verses of this great book of the Bible, I want you to see two points within these verses. The first is that God uses death to exodus his people. Second thing is that God uses sin to provide for his people. Look at Genesis chapter 49, beginning in verse 29. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with a field from Ephron the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed, and he breathed his last and was gathered to his people. So the first thing we see is that God uses death to exodus his people. So Jacob, if you remember in chapter 48 and chapter 49, what does he issue? He issues all of these prophetic blessings onto his children. Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph, and then all of his other sons, and then Joseph again, he's issuing all of this blessing onto his sons. Those are some of his famous last words, but his very last words were commands. So the blessing, and then he gives them commands. Jacob knows that his death is coming. He wants to be buried in the tomb of the patriarchs. Do you remember several chapters ago, 10 or 15 chapters ago, where Abraham buys a cave? Abraham buys this field in Canaan. And one of the things that we noted about this that's important is that he buys this land and it is, part, it, it is the first fruits of the land. Remember that he made a big stink, that he didn't want to, to um, be given the land as Ephron the Hittite. He said, I'll just give you the land. Like, what's this between us? He says, no, I want to buy that land from you because it's going to be his. He's going to have deed in hand. And this is going to be the place where Abraham's body is buried. Sarah's body is going to be buried. And that's the place that Jacob wants to be buried now too. Why? Does he want to be buried there because of some sort of like sentimental reasons? Some of you might have burial plots and you already know where you're going to be buried and maybe your family's buried in a certain place and you kind of know where it's going to be. I don't think that's exactly it for Jacob. There's this aspect where Jacob wants to go back to the land. It's about getting back to the land for Jacob. And so he says, I want to be buried in the... I mean, he says it over and over, doesn't he? 
He says it in verse 30 about Ephron the Hittite. In verse 32, he says it again about the Hittites. Later on, in verse 13, it says he goes to Canaan, buried at the field of Makla, east of Mamre, like over, bought with a field from Ephron the Hittite. Like over and over and over again. Where is Jacob going? He's going to the place where we bought the land from Ephron the Hittite. Why is that so important? Because that's the first fruits of the land. That's the first chunk. And now for the next 500 years or so, they're in slavery for about 400 years. Things are good for about the first 100 years. So for the next 500 years or so, they're not going to be able to go back. So as you're an, an Israelite, hearing the stories about your Jacob and Isaac and Abraham, and you're hearing all of the stories about your great fathers, one of the things that keeps coming up is this land bought by from Ephron the Hittite again and again and again. And as an early Israelite, you would have said, that's where we're going. That's where home is. That's where our fathers have been buried. And so this is a very key thing to understand. That Jacob doesn't want to just go because he wants to be buried with his, aunt, with his father and his grandfather. He wants to go there because that is the promised land. I will make a note about that cave, though, that the only ones buried in the cave are ancestors of the Messiah. Joseph is not buried in the cave. Simeon's not buried in the cave. None of those guys are buried in the cave. It is only Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their wives. And you notice that it's not Jacob's wife, Rachel, his favorite wife that's in the cave. It's Jacob's wife, Leah, that's in the cave, which is Judah's mother, through whom the Messiah will eventually come. So what Jacob is commanding here is his own personal exodus. Again, like the people hundreds of years later who would exit Egypt, Jacob wants his exodus when he dies. So even as you look through his death in the first 14 verses of chapter 50, they, they prepare him and then they usher him out of Egypt. This is, this is a foretelling of sorts. This is uh, giving us a, a glimpse into the future, if you will, of all of the people of Israel eventually coming out of Egypt in Jacob's exodus himself. And so Jacob is commanding his own exodus, just like the people hundreds of years later would exit Egypt. Jacob wants his exodus when he dies. It would be through his death that he would be brought back to the land. And this, again, would have been a huge encouragement for the Israelites to to go back to that land, to, to be there, to be in the land of their fathers, that God was faithful to Jacob and he would be faithful to the early Israelites. You know, Christian, it's the same for us as well. God has been faithful to Jacob. God has been faithful to the Israelites. And God is faithful to us as well. Even through our own death, what is God doing for us? I'm looking into the eyes of people, all of which are going to die. None of you are going to live. But the good news is that we're all going to get out of this world alive. If you're a Christian. We are going to die and God is going to exodus us. Just like Jacob dies and he's exodus to Canaan. We are going to die and we are going to be exodus to the heavenly Canaan. We're going to be brought to that place. 
And again, I, I would say that only God can do this. Only God can take something like death and cause something beautiful to come from it. Only God can bring eternal life after physical death. And we can trust him for this. Can't you trust him for this? How do you make it through life if you're not trusting him, knowing that he's going to bring you to the heavenly kingdom? I don't know how you make it through 2020 without believing this message. I honestly don't. How do you make it day in and day out, not knowing what tomorrow is going to bring without thinking to yourself, I trust my Lord and I know he's going to bring me to the heavenly Canaan. I can trust him that the keys to Zion City, as we sang, they're ours and we're going there. How do you make it through 2020 without believing in this kind of a message? That when our eyes close on earth, they're going to open in heaven. And there we will see our Savior, even as Jacob would have opened his eyes and he would have seen Christ. Can you imagine that for Jacob? Jacob dies in this moment. And there he is, laying there. His sons are all staring at him. But Jacob closes his eyes on earth, draws his feet up into his bed. And when he opens his eyes, he sees the one that was at the top of the ladder. It's amazing. He sees the one that he had already seen so many chapters ago. It's beautiful. Only God can work such a wonder after such an ugly thing like death. The first 14 verses of chapter 50 is is a long recorded process of Jacob being taken care of, his body being cared for. Jacob is... And it's interesting that Moses takes so much time to give us these details. And you have, um, you see it in uh, verse 2, that Joseph commands that his father be embalmed. And so this whole embalming process happens, and it happens within these 40 days. It takes a certain amount of time in order to embalm a body. In fact, that's actually a memory I I have of my father. my, My grandfather died when I was two. I remember my dad telling me when I was young um, that like when, when he grabbed his father's hand in the casket and how hard it was upon being embalmed. But you have an embalming here of Jacob. And what they would have done, if you're interested, is they would have taken a, a sharp hook mechanism, put it up the nose, and that's how they would have drawn everything out of his skull. And then they would have sliced open his side. Henry, don't look too excited, man. Uh, he, <laughs> he's looking at me with like, wow, this is great sliced open his side and then they would pull the bowels out that way. And so ultimately what you're doing is you're, you're empty, emptying the, the brain, of course, the, the cranium, and you're emptying the cavern of the body. And what they would do then is they would fill it up with all of these spices. So you see the extreme care that they take for the body. And I think that's an important thing that we acknowledge as well as we're looking at this. That body care of those who died is extremely important all throughout the Bible. It's so, so important. And so Joseph ends up sending word to Pharaoh saying, My father made me swear that I would bring him back to Canaan. And so he brings this whole process about. And so Pharaoh says, Go up and go and bury your father. And so the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, they all go with Joseph and they bury his father in Canaan. And there's great lamentation. And all the inhabitants of the Canaanites, they, they see this all happening. They say, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. But they do this in response to the command of their father. Again, so this is, 
This is key that we acknowledge this, though. And, and I think as you look through the entire Bible, that this is something that we need to acknowledge as well. And this is a, a more, uh, not technical, but a more practical point. That you always see the body being taken care of. Now, the Bible never says, thou shalt not cremate. It doesn't say that anywhere. So I'm not going to say, thou shalt not cremate. But you only ever see the opposite. You only ever see them taking care of the body to the fullest extent. So even um, in this situation, in Joseph's situation, they end up taking his bones back to Canaan and they end up burying them. You see this all throughout until you get to the book of Leviticus where they actually do say to burn bodies, but it's the bodies of those who have been incredibly immoral. It's, it's like the adulterers and so forth. They say, burn those bodies. And even in Genesis chapter 38, if you remember the whole episode with Judah and Tamar, where Tamar is found to be pregnant, of course, by Judah, but he is being hypocritical in that moment. And what does he say? He doesn't say stone her. He says burn her. And so there's this understanding that for those who were utterly immoral, the burning of the body is what you would do. But for everybody else within the covenant... It seems as though they care for the bodies. Maybe you remember later on in the Old Testament where the bodies are hanging on the wall and the men come in sneaking into the city at night, take the bodies off the wall, risking their own lives, and then they go and properly care for the bodies. There's always this body care motif throughout the entire Bible. Of course, you imagine if Jesus had been cremated, that'd be an interesting resurrection. But Jesus is put in the tomb, isn't he? And then what happens a day or two after? The ladies come and what are they going to do? They're going to take care of the body. And so there's this notion all throughout the Bible um, that, that there is this wonderful body care. And I think that's something that's important for us to think about as we think about what should be done with our own bodies after we die. Um, I told the service earlier that I want to make graveyards great again. I want to make cemeteries great again. Um, you think about a church having its own cemetery, and that's just not for convenience sake, because the church might have an extra plot of land, but that there's essentially a hall of faith, isn't there? It was wonderful to go down south to a church uh, earlier this year, and I was walking into the church, and over to my left there was a, a headstone, and it was the former pastor's headstone. And I just think that's a, a remarkable sort of thing to be able to walk through these tombstones and to be able to look and say, look at this person here. They were so faithful. This person, I remember when they were serving back in 2020 during the COVID crisis and they were doing so much for people and just walking down the line and then, you know, it'd be kind of neat in the resurrection someday to burst forth together. I just think that'd be kind of neat. Hey, Daryl, we're going up. This is awesome. It's a lot of fun. Glorified bodies. Here we come. So anyway, God uses death to deliver his people. But the second thing that God does God uses sin to provide for his people. Look at verse 15 with me. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. And so they, went, they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good 
to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. There's some debate as to whether or not Joseph's brothers are lying and saying that Jacob had given them this information to then give Joseph. I think that they probably are lying. But even though I think it's a lie, I think there's truth within this lie. I think that they, in their sincerity, really want Joseph to know that they're sorry. I think they really want him to know that. And, and, and you see, it, it, it's emphasized because of the different words that they use in order to tell, them, tell him that they are sorry. Look at that. He says, he says in verse 17, transgression, sin, and evil. Like, there's no stone unturned. They want Joseph to know, we're sorry about our transgression. We're sorry about our sin. We're sorry about the evil that we did to you. It reminds me of Psalm 51, after David kills Uriah, after he commits adultery with Bathsheba. And he uses three words there. He says, sin, transgression, and iniquity. That all of the bases would be covered. I've sinned against you. I've transgressed against you. I've committed great evil against you. And so I think that these brothers are certainly sorry. And there's certainly also an element of believability Because Joseph weeps when he hears this. So either they're great actors or there really is a truth. There is an evidence where their heart is on their sleeve and Joseph can see it. And he knows that his brothers are genuinely sorry. And they say to him again, as they had before, they say, we are your servants. And how does Joseph respond? He says, do not fear. Am I in the place of God? You meant it for evil. See, as Joseph is is interacting with his brothers as they're asking for this forgiveness, he acknowledges to them, yeah, you did wrong. You meant this thing for evil. You did. And, And he knew that they did. He knew that they meant it for evil against him. So this isn't a, you know, well, we didn't really mean it, Joseph. Uh, you know, hope everything is fine for us in the future. No, it's, it's, we did this wrong against you. And Joseph says, yeah, you did do this evil against me. Joseph knew it. He acknowledges it. But he also knew something else. He knew that God meant it for good. Joseph understood something about this whole experience that profoundly changed his perspective. Joseph understood two things. He understood that God is sovereign and he understood that God is good. So since he understood that God is sovereign and that God is good, that would then influence the way that he viewed his brother's evil against him. Because even though his brothers meant it for evil, he could say God meant it for good. So God meant, which means God is sovereign, for good. That goodness bubbling out of the fact that God himself as a characteristic is good. So being thrown into the pit, you guys meant that for evil. God meant it for good. Being sold into slavery, God, you, you meant that for evil. God meant that for good. The whole Potiphar's wife situation... She meant that for evil. 
God meant it for good. The whole being thrown into jail, she meant that for evil. God meant it for good. Not seeing his dad for years after year after year after year. His brothers meant that for evil. God meant it for good. Joseph understood that God is both sovereign and that God is good. And that total perspective influenced the way he viewed his brother's sins on that day. And friends, when you are going through really hard times, what are probably the two hardest things for you to believe about God? That God is sovereign and that God is good. Isn't that hard to believe in hard times? We say we're Christians. We say we believe in Genesis 1-1 and as we see a sovereign hand throughout the book of Genesis and the Bible and we see his goodness throughout Genesis and the rest of the Bible. But the hard thing for us to realize and to remember when we're going through difficult circumstances is that God is both sovereign and that God is good. Somebody very close to me this week lost their baby and found out they had the coronavirus. How in the world, when those two things have happened, baby in the womb, when those two things have happened, how do you then say God is sovereign and that God is good? I like what one author said a long time ago, John Flavel. He said that the providence of God is like reading Hebrew. It's best read backwards. It needs to be read backwards because that's how you read in Hebrew. You don't read this way. You read this way. And in a lot of ways, friends, that's the way it is with the sovereignty of God. You begin to read it more legibly as time goes on and you can begin reading it backwards. That God is sovereign and that God is good. But this causes us such consternation in those times because if God is sovereign, then what you're saying is that he gave me that virus. If God is sovereign, then what you're saying is that he took my baby. God is sovereign and he made me go through all of this financial turmoil and having to suffer these bullies on the playground and having to deal with struggles within my marriage, whatever. Like You're saying God is sovereign and good, but I can't acknowledge, I can't see how he's sovereign and good as I'm experiencing all of these things. This... This is all contained under the heading of what we call theodicy. How can a good, sovereign God permit evil? And many people have slammed their head on that question for hundreds of years, thousands of years. I don't know if some of you remember, but earlier this year, uh, James Brennan had been coming to the church. And James used to sit over here. And he now goes to a church up in the Waterville area, closer to where he lives but before he became a believer, this was his, his huge issue. In fact, he's a poet and he wrote a poem about it on, on theodicy. He had, he had such a difficulty reconciling a sovereign God with a good God. But one of the things that I, I had to explain to James was that it wasn't as though God is just pie in the sky, completely untouched by suffering And that all that God does is unleash suffering and pain and turmoil on all of us little peons down below. But that God himself actually stepped into suffering himself. Didn't he? Peter says in the book of Acts, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God... 
Christ suffered at the hands of the ungodly men. If you remember Isaiah 53, what does that do? Isaiah 53 prophetically shows us what the Christ is going to go through. And what is he called? He's the suffering servant. He's the one who's the lamb led to the slaughter. This is the God-man who's going to experience an incredible amount of pain and struggle and agony. He's the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. This was always in the mind of God, the plan, the decree of God, that the God-man would come and that he would be brutally massacred. So God doesn't just stay up there and I, I, I've got, I, I have no relation to any of this sin and struggle and pain. I've got no. no. Because the God-man came to this earth and he experienced all of the evil of man crucifying and the evil of man beating him and the evil of man spitting on him and slapping him and slamming a crown of thorns into his head and driving nails into his hands and into his feet. This isn't a God who is unfamiliar with suffering, but that God himself took on flesh and suffered for us. And you know, you can imagine that all, as all of those things are happening and Jesus is being beaten and he's slapped and spat on and the nails and the crown and all of that stuff, you can just imagine what hell must have been like. Like the demons in hell just rejoicing as this Jesus, the one promised in Genesis 3.15, this Shiloh that we looked at last week that we were expecting to come, that there he is, he's on the cross and he died. And now we're going to put him into a grave. They're going to put him into a grave. This is great. Satan going into Judas and, and causing him to betray Jesus, all of that. And they're like, yes, our plan has come to pass. And as they see Jesus die and they see him laid in the tomb, we see that Satan meant it for evil. Didn't he? Satan meant it for evil. Not realizing that all that he had been doing, all that he had been working for, he didn't realize that it would be to his own peril. He didn't realize that it would be to, to bring him to being crushed by the seed of the woman. But to the question of the odyssey at the cross... In his burial, you see the sovereignty of God. This was determined. You see the evil means being used. They were wicked men. But you see the goodness of God. You see his goodness. Through such goodness, God sovereignly orchestrated what we need most. And what Joseph offers his brothers here. He offers them two things. He offers them forgiveness. And he offers them provision. And friends, what do we need from our Lord? We need forgiveness. And we need provision. Look at verse 19 again. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. As they are today. And so Jesus. He gives to us brothers and sisters. The forgiveness. And he gives us the provision. You think of Jesus in light of these verses. Jesus is in the place of God. Joseph says I, I'm not in the place of God. I, I'm not going to take vengeance on you. But Jesus is in the place of God. He is God. And he could enact vengeance on us. 
But what does he offer us instead? He offers us forgiveness and he offers us provision. God means it for good.